China living an economic nightmare and the U.S. is red hot. That's what the Western media tells us. But is it actually true or is it creating a contrarian opportunity in China? Well, that's what I'm going to go, go through in this episode. My name is Mike Sharp. This is Contrarian Corner. This is the second episode. And today I'm going to be looking at some of the economic data points uh, from China and the U.S. Plus, I'll be looking at two Chinese companies that I own, uh, Pinduoduo and Alibaba. Guys, first off, I just want to apologize for the sound here. I am in a hotel room uh, in lovely Melbourne, Australia for the next month, uh, but I don't have my normal mic, so uh, there would be a little bit of an echo. Um, a quick note about contrarian investing. Now, Joel Greenblatt said uh, had a great quote. He said, just because no one else will jump in front of a Mack truck barreling down the highway doesn't mean that you should. So what does that mean? It means just don't blindly buy when something's crashing, right? Because sometimes there's good reason for it. And so, and sometimes the narrative of the herd is actually in line with reality. So today we're talking about a country, which is China. So I'm going to relate an example with Argentina just a few years ago. In 2019, the Peronist party there, uh, they won the election. And historically, they had very, they had terrible economic policies. We all know that Argentina has been through multiple debt defaults and economic crises. And this party was responsible for a few of them. Uh, so they've come in in 2019 and the stock, the stock market fell off by 40% within two weeks. The currency collapsed 25% overnight and it is now down 88%. So people were right to run for the hills. Now with that, with Argentina, after everyone ran for the hills and all the foreign investors left, then is when you might want to go and sift through the rubble and see if you can find something good. For instance, in 2021, I found a power generation company called Central Puerto. They were trading at, I don't know, two or three times earnings. So the net asset value of Central Puerto was 10 times the market cap. And so that created a situation where I thought, well, this is a company that's probably not going to zero. People are going to want to turn the lights on. They're going to want to use the air conditioning. So we need power to do that stuff you know, have your refrigerator working. So power is not going anywhere. And I thought all I need is a good day here in, in, in Argentina. Now that everybody's left, all the selling pressure is gone. So I'm out of that, com uh, that company now. And now the momentum investors are in Argentina. Uh, this year, there's been a real surge from the Libertarian Party there. And the Libertarian candidate actually won the primary election a few weeks ago. And Argentina is a very hot topic for momentum investors. Now, I'm a contrarian investor, which means I get in at, at a different point than mom momentum investors do. But now there's, you know, it's not so obvious where the deals are. And so that's not a, not a market that I want to look at. That being said, I think China is a great place to look for deals right now. So where's the contrarian play in China? Well, if you look at any headlines right now, all you can see is negativity about China. That's actually been the same for the better part of two years. But I'll go through each of the uh, the main points that seems to be a big problem right now. We have GDP, total disaster. Youth unemployment rate is spiking. Exports are falling. Real estate collapse. Deflation. This is just all over when you read about Chinese um the Chinese economy. But I'm going to go through each one of these and we'll take a look at what's actually happening here. So first off, GDP. GDP in quarter two came in at annualized 6.3%. That's pretty good. But the problem was the expectation was for 7.2%. And 
economists have now uh, taken their estimates for the entire year down to 5.1%, down from 5.2%. So the downward revisions is what everybody's freaking out about. Personally, I like the idea of getting 5.1% tailwind behind my investment. Who knows, though? Maybe that's bad. Uh, so in 2024, they're also predicting uh, 4.5%, the economists are. Um, but if I'm honest, I think economists are not very good at seeing past the end of their nose. So I'm not really putting a lot of stock in that one. Now, if we turn to the U.S., if you read the new U.S. news, you, the U.S. grew at a blistering 2.1% in the second quarter. And now everybody thinks this is amazing. The, the, the country is doing fantastic. I actually um, saw somebody in uh, an interview and he said, it's impossible to understate how hot the U.S. economy is. 2.1% sounds pretty hot to me. Um, so there's really some obvious bias here in the news that we're, we're seeing, right? So personally, I think 5.1 is better than 2.1. But what do I know about mathematics? Um, I think there's maybe some other nuance here. So the Atlanta Fed, which is one of the Fed bodies in the U.S., is actually estimating a 5.8% growth rate, rate in the U.S. in uh, the third quarter. Now, I dug into that a bit. and that is based off a few data points from July. So they just keep changing their their up, their forecast based on these new data points that are only a month old. Um, so I don't think there's a lot of credibility behind that. And if you look back, these Federal Reserve bodies are actually not very good at predicting uh, economic growth. But that's the number everyone's jumping on right now. Atlanta Fed, 5.8%. Wow. Um, the next one that everybody's talking about is youth unemployment rate. Youth unemployment is soaring at 21%, and they've actually stopped um, reporting this in China. So this is another big one that the U.S. media is jumping on and saying, oh, it's a disaster, and that's why they've stopped reporting it. Now, if I'm honest, I don't think that the unemployment rate between age 16 and 24 is a huge deal. These are a lot of people who are in school um, they're getting their first job. We all know how hard it is to get your first job um, without experience. Uh, so I think this is not a huge problem, although 21% is quite high. I don't think it's a reason to throw in the towel on China, though. I think it's one data point in a huge country. Um, the next one is quite interesting, actually, exports. So exports dropped in China by 14% in July and now down to 8.8% drop in August, year over year. So those are pretty big numbers, right? And that's what you hear in the headlines. And that's what you, when you read the articles, you find that. But I actually dug into the U.S. data. And for quarter two, guess what? Goods exports, guess how much they were down? 16% in quarter two. I haven't heard that in, anywhere in the media. So actually, the U.S. is doing worse on exports than China, but China gets the bad headlines. This shows you, again, how biased the media is. China is the geopolitical enemy of the U.S., so I understand why they would get negative press, but this may be creating an opportunity for you and me as investors. Uh, next one is deflation. So another big headline, deflation is running at 0.3% annualized in July. Let's pull that apart. One of the components of this is pork. Pork was down 28%, so that's one data point that's going to move around a lot because that's food. And without that 
percent, they actually aren't in deflation. That 28% drop, they're not actually inflation. So I think that this is, again, another headline that's just trying to get clicks. But, you know, maybe there's something to it. Maybe it's maybe it's the canary in the coal mine. Uh, I have a bit of a different view on deflation. I think this is actually good for the economy because what happens is it gives the central bank cover to stimulate the economy. So if there's actually deflation, I would think the central bank in China is actually going to print and stimulate. They've already started to do it a little bit, but it gives them cover to do more if they actually want to. Um, the last one is the real estate collapse. Now this, I would say this is probably the the real issue here. Now they really overbuilt and they had, they had some serious problems with Evergrande and another one. I forgot the other, the other company's name, but these two major companies that um, have had serious problems. Now this could create a bigger problem down the, down the road. So I think that's a risk that I'm watching, but all the other ones, I think this is just immediate noise. One last point on uh, the U.S. is that I again I dug into the the quarter two data and of this 2.1 percent uh, GDP growth, the government spending and the government portion of this was actually up 3.3 percent. So they're accounting for a big chunk of the growth rate. Now that is huge debt. We all know uh, Biden is is running huge deficits and pumping money into the economy. So this is a bit of a false growth rate, if you ask me, because it's 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 very much backstopped by Biden and his team. Now, if that spending and that deficit goes away, that could pull pull GDP down pretty hard. Okay, so let's talk about valuations, right? So in China, uh, I'm going to use actually the Hang Seng in Index. So Hang, Hang Seng, uh, the current multiple, uh, the current valuation is 11.7 uh, price to earnings ratio. We, if we compare that with the US market all in, which is at 27.5 times earnings, uh, you have a situation where the Chinese market is more than a 50% discount from the U.S. market in terms of valuation. Now, if you ask me, I would rather have a 5.1% uh, tailwind economically um, at a 12 times uh, price-to-earnings ratio versus a 2% tailwind at a 27, 28 multiple. I would take the first one, being a value investor myself, but, uh, you know, there is obviously risk in there. So the points I'm trying to make here with the economic data are, as opposed to Argentina, where the narrative fit the reality, I think this is a situation where the narrative is diverging, diverging from reality and possibly creating an opportunity here. So the headlines say that China is terrible. Biden actually said it's a ticking economic time bomb. But the reality is there's growing at 5% this year, maybe 45 maybe 5% next year. That is that is unbelievable growth for such a huge economy. So I think that I would rather be on the buy side of this uh, than on the run for the hill side and maybe creating an opportunity, especially when you when you factor in the valuation where it's almost what's over 50% cheaper than the US market. So you're getting a better bang for your buck. Now quickly about risks. Uh, the main one is obviously that the tensions between the United States and China continue to escalate. The economic war intensifies and potentially a hot war actually materializes. Now, I'm reading on China by Henry Kissinger right now. Thanks, Cole. Appreciate that. Um, and it gives me a good idea of the historical uh, 
attitude towards war that China has. Now, they historically, they have a lot more of a patient sort of um, psychological uh, tactic towards uh, strategy towards conflict. And, and war is actually the very last option. So they often avoid uh, wars through being for, through outsmarting their opponents and finding other advantages that they can take to, uh, that they can use. Now, based on what they're doing right now with G, it looks like that strategy is the same. They did use the cover of COVID to strengthen their hold on uh, Hong Kong, and nobody lifted a finger to stop them. So I would think that the Taiwan situation may end up something like that, but. War, a hot war can't be ruled out. I'm not making a prediction here. I'm just thinking that it's probably not imminent from the Chinese perspective. Now, the 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 other side to that risk is the U.S. because the U.S. seems to be provoking China in a number of different ways, and then China is retaliating. So that tit for tat could escalate. And and you know, if you are an investor in China, there is a potential for a Russia type situation where if you had Russian stocks uh, at at the invasion of Ukraine, those would have gone to zero or they would have gone to 10 cents on the dollar because you weren't allowed to hold them anymore. So there is a tail risk here on these stocks, but it's not, it's not, um, the distribution isn't, uh, even right. So what's happening is the stocks are getting discounted at, you know, 40 to 50%. But if, if there is no war, then maybe that discounts not, uh, warranted. But if, if there is a tail risk event, then you could lose everything. Um, the other situation is uh, the de demographics. I hear a lot, this a lot about demographics in China. Now they have this huge bulge of people um, and then not a lot of children to replace the workforce coming through. So you hear this a lot in uh, macro circles. They talk about the demographic problems with China. Now, as an investor, my time horizon is three to five years long. And if we look at this distribution of ages in China, the I I think this shows that the problem is not actually going to hit until at least 2030. So from 2023, I have my whole investment time horizon before there's actually any serious issue uh, that comes along through the demographics. Now, it also gives them a lot of time to sort out solutions to this, maybe the advent of AI and automating a lot of jobs. Maybe they don't need as many workers in the future. Maybe a lot of the uh, economy will be automated. And this actually gives them advan an advantage because they don't have as many workers that'll be unemployed. I don't know, just, just a crazy theory. Um, but the demographics thing, it's not relevant to me because it's not within my time horizon, uh, my t investment time horizon. Um, and just with respect to risks, remember delisting risk? If you have been following Chinese stocks for a while, uh, delisting was the big topic for a year. Where did that go? Well, it, it's gone. Um, my understanding is that basically the Chinese companies have passed their audit audits and it's, we're just fine to move forward. Now, correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, please. But, uh, this, this just shows me how the media works. Delisting risk, something terrible. Don't invest in China. It gets fixed. There's no headlines. There's no noise anywhere about it. Um, because that would involve putting a positive headline, uh, which <laughs> which we obviously don't want to do about China because they're a geopolitical uh, rival to most of us if we're watching it from the Western world. Um, now, the last risk here is about 
valuations. So the question is, can China ever get a decent valuation again, right? Or is this 60% um, 60 discount permanent? Uh, or could it even get worse, right? So most people think the answer, I, most people I've talked to think the answer is yes, the discount is permanent. Okay, that's fine. Uh, when I actually bought um, Gazprom back in 2020, and luckily just happened to get rid of it before Ukraine. That was not, that was just luck that I got rid of it because uh, it had gone up. Um, but the Putin discount before Ukraine was actually real and it was permanent, right? So you could get all these stocks in China for much cheaper than you could get uh, in other countries. And they never got a decent valuation. I think Gazprom was trading at two or three times earnings itself with huge, um, with a huge uh, dividend yield. And it just stayed like that. So when you're investing in a, in a situation like this, what I do is I say, okay, well, if the, if the discount is permanent, I have to see if I'm going to make money anyway. I can't rely on an expansion of price earnings ratio valuation. Uh, I have to say, is this actually a good purchase at the price I get, assuming that the valuation stays the same? So the two stocks that I'm going to talk about in a bit do fit that criteria uh, for me. But again, the big risk is that the, the, the valuations come down even further. They're close to 12 right now in the Hang Seng. Could go to eight. Why, why wouldn't it, right? Russia was at five, six pretty consistently. So it's possible it could even come down. Just keep that in mind. So actually onto the stocks now. Um, I own Alibaba and Pinduoduo. I'm going to talk about both of them. But just as a word of caution, I am biased because I own them. Uh, do your own research not investing advice. Now, a lot of value investors bought Alibaba back when uh, Charlie Munger started buying and some other value investors did as well. And that was also my uh, trigger to start looking at it. I said, oh, Charlie's buying this for the first thing he's bought in, what, 10 years? Um, so that's a real that was a real good indicator. Since then, he's trash-talked it. A lot of value investors have left the space. And I think a lot of people have given up on this company. And quite honestly, it's been a... Been a uh, a trying experience, right? So we've seen other stocks go through bear market and now we're in a bull market. We've seen a lot of movement and Alibaba has basically just languished. But quarter two is maybe the best quarter I've seen since I own, own this stock. Now I'll just, my quickly my investment uh, thesis here, it's nothing complicated, uh, pretty basic. You're basically paying for Taobao and Tmall, the current market price, and you're getting six other lottery tickets to go along with it. If any one of them works to a big degree, international commerce, cloud, anything, logistics, if any of those work and they start producing big cash flows, this is a home run, right? Because they're all free. Um, so if we look at it quickly, what's happened in quarter, uh, it's actually quarter one, it's the June ending quarter. So quarter one, 2024, uh, their growth has finally restarted, right? It's just been grinding along for the last two years with COVID and all this stuff. And they finally got some growth. So we saw 14% revenue growth in the period. And more importantly, Taobao and Tmall grew 12%. So uh, not to mention all the other even faster growth rates in most of the, the rest of the business, except cloud. Um, so the idea here is basically that if we look forward, I'm saying there's a good chance we're going to get 25 billion in free cash flow. And if we look at the valuation right now, the whole company is selling for 235 billion. 
Um, so that is a price to earnings ratio of less than 10. It's closer to nine. So 9.4, I think. And my general thinking here is that if you can get these stocks at half or less of what you think that they would trade for in the US, that's probably a good deal. So the question is, would we pay 18, 19, 20 times earnings for a company like Alibaba? Huge business, world-class business, a few different moats, a few different paths to huge growth, and very entrenched in one of the biggest, uh, fastest growing economies in the world. I would say that that is at least worth a 20 times uh, free cash flow multiple. Um, so, so I'm saying Alibaba is pretty cheap at these prices. If you do a sort of a modified um, calculation where you say take the enterprise value, so they've got 50 billion in cash, the uh, enterprise value comes down even further to 185 billion. And then you're looking at more like, what is that, 7.5 times uh, EV to e oh no, EV to earnings, right? Um, EV to cash flow, uh, which is very cheap. Now that's not a normal metric, but basically it's just cash flow versus uh, what the whole company is worth. Um, so I think that the, the main idea here is that when in these past few years where times have been tough for Alibaba, they've really started to manage the cost side, right? So they started to really get leaner. And at the same time, they're trying to reaccelerate growth with Taobao deals and some, and some of their other, some of their other um, uh, divisions, right? So now you're maybe getting a two, a two pronged attack here. You're going to get the cost come down and the revenue to rise, which should ex expand margins very quickly if that keeps happening. And finally, on to Pinduoduo, PDD. This is actually the, my favorite company right now. They are an unbelievable business. I think it's actually a better business than Alibaba, but I'm going to go through what my quickly what my thesis is, uh, if you haven't heard it already. Um, but also look at some of the, the quarter two financials. So basically the idea here is that Pinduoduo is a scaled economy shared business. This is this is sort of uh, an idea that I came up with. I haven't really heard it anywhere else. So it's possibly wrong because I'm not getting any <laughs> confirmation from anywhere else. But my contention is that they're a scaled economy shared business, uh, a la Nick, Nick Sleep, uh, Amazon, uh, and Costco, the, the concept that he made famous. So scaled economies uh, business uh, means that it's a it's a business that is huge so that their fixed cost is a, is a small portion of the overall um, the overall cost structure and that means they can get the costs to the customers down. Now so Pinduoduo has over 900 million uh, customers here and they have very small overheads, right? So they don't actually um, take control of the goods that flow through their uh, sites. They do take control of the grocery side, um, but but their gross margins are huge. They're around 70%, uh, which shows you the uh, the lean cost structure they have. And then they don't even have that many costs on top of that. I think their general administration is 2% of revenue. So they have these huge margins that they can um, use to improve the business. So that's the scaled economy side of the business. Well, actually I should say why it's why it's like that. So they, they built their platform on sort of group buying, uh, this group buying uh, concept where you can join a team or bring a team in, bring your friends in. And if you buy a bunch of the same product, you get a discount from the manufacturer, right? So you can, you can get volume discounts 
Uh, and you can just join a team. You don't even need to know anybody. There'll be like teams that are available and you can just jump in and get the, the team buying price. I think something like 99% of the uh, products that get sold on PDD are on um, a group buying uh, format. Almost nobody buys a single item. Uh, but the more important side of this is that they're uh, what they call a C2M uh, manuf- or C2M company. So that's consumer to manufacturer. So what they did is they figured out a model where they could cut out every single middleman between the manufacturer and the end, the end buyer. Whereas usually there's some middlemen, there's some distributors. And even on Taobao, uh, not Taobao deals, but Taobao, that's a middleman. So that's somebody buying from a manufacturer and selling to a customer. So their, their key is that they teach these uh, manufacturers how to sell directly. They make it easy for them, which is uh, something that historically manufacturers are not good at, and that's why they need distribution. So that's the scaled economy side. They can they can get the prices very, very low because of group buying, volume discounts, and their C2M model. Now, what they do on top of that is the shared part of the scaled economy shared is they take the um, they take all these huge profits that they have at, on their gross margins, and they reinvest them right back into the, a lot of them right back into the customer. So if we look on the quarter two, they have 2.4 million in sales and marketing. And what that what a lot of that is, is just direct discounts to the customer. So that you go on there and you get these really low prices from the manufacturer. And then PDD on top of that, they, they add their own discount a lot of the time to those to those products. So you get them down 10 20% from these rock bottom prices. So rock bottom, they're even lower because their margins are so big, they can take money and reinvest them right back into making the products cheaper. Now, all that being said, this was looked at as a, I think this was looked at as a, uh, what, what do they call it? This is a risk factor in a lot of write-ups I've read, but Pinduoduo is very uh, committed to these, these discounts. And I don't think it's a risk at all because if you look at the bottom line, they're able to produce a huge profit. In quarter two, they had a 29% net profit margin after all those discounts, after they paid for everything, including the discounts. So this is a very high margin business. And uh, yeah, if we look at the income statement really quickly, you'll see that you know even the growth rates are phenomenal too. So we had revenue um, up 66% year over year, uh, profit growth was up 42%. Now, a lot of that is because they're investing in two other platforms that aren't yet profitable. Uh, so they have this huge grocery, grocery business that they're building up in China. They're the number one uh, grocery chain in the com- country already and growing at light speed. Um, and then in, in international side, they have, a, uh, have an app called Timu. If you're in the US or in other countries, you can use Timu and buy from these manufacturers in China and the prices are extremely cheap. Um, so they're building up an international um, segment, you know, kind of like AliExpress, but it seems like it's actually going a lot better than AliExpress. Timu was the number one downloaded app, uh, I think, between November and uh, May last year before Threads came on board and uh, took that title away from But they they were growing at light speed. Um, and so that is another potential upside that hasn't even... Uh, born fruit yet. So they're paying for these huge uh, growth uh, growth segments to the business and still producing a 29% margin on after everything. So this is unbelievable to me. What a, what a phenomenal business. It looks so good and they don't give you hardly any information on their 
uh, quarterly reports, it looks so good that people go, this is too good to be true. This must be a scam. Uh, there must be some issue with the accounting here or something. I don't know. I haven't found any actual evidence that that is even uh, possibly true. So uh, my my contention is more that maybe they're just holding on to the secret sauce. They don't want to teach the competition what they're doing and how, how, how they're getting these great results. Um, so then, you know, what's Pindua Dua worth? If we go back to the idea that, you know, if it was listed in the U.S., what would it be worth there? And then we'll cut it in half just to be safe. So you have a company that's growing by 66%, uh, and they made $2.1 in net income in quarter two, which is up 42% from last year. So if we an if we just annualize that quarter two um, net income, let's say it's $8.5 if if you get an annualized earnings rate, Currently, it's trading at 128 billion market cap. That's a 15 multiple. Um, so I think that a company like this would be trading far higher than 30 times earnings in the U.S. I'm thinking 50, 60, maybe more, because these are these are um, these are like Nvidia type numbers. Uh, and so I think this is a great deal if you if you're getting a 15 times earnings. Now, if you take the 30 billion in cash they have off the top of that the uh, multiple gets even better. I mean, you're closer to 10, which is totally insane. Um, so I think that's it for the companies. Those are quick overviews. If you'd like to learn more about those companies, I did I did more of an in-depth uh, analysis on both of them on my channel, uh, which is Sharp Investing. So check that out if you have time. So just some final thoughts here on what I think may happen here. Like we've got two paths to a win here in China. Uh, one is that these stocks that we own, or that I own, say Alibaba and Pinduoduo, they just continue to do well with their business. The valuation doesn't change, and the growth rate and the improvement in the business um, increases the intrinsic value of the company over time. And we don't need, or I don't need, a valuation increase. Now, the other thing that could happen here is maybe some of this negative noise that I was talking about at the beginning that seems to be consistent and permanent, maybe it's not permanent, maybe it goes away and there's a lull in the negative uh, sort of Western bias about China and the Chinese economy. Maybe that Biden goes to visit and they become friends for a little while. I, I don't know. It looks like there's uh, maybe there's a path to some, some uh, peace in the future. You might get a situation like that. And I think that it wouldn't take uh, Chinese stocks very long to re-rate higher if we had a bit of a lull in the geopolitical noise. Now we saw that between like November and February this year, um, November last year and February this year, where Chinese stocks were up 60% in a very short period of time where the, there was some positive news. Like you saw a lot of uh, investment banks upgrading Chinese stocks and they just, they moved like crazy off the bottom. So if we get in a more extended period of that, let's say 12 months where, um, where, like I said, there's a lull in the in the in the international conflict. You could see this. I could see this easily doubling and maybe even more. But who knows? I can't predict that stuff. So what I'm doing is I'm protecting myself. I say I own great businesses in this these this country, and if that stuff doesn't happen, I'm still happy to own them and allow them to uh, to do their thing and grow their business. Because ultimately, buying stocks is buying a business. You you own a business. You don't own a a piece of paper, a number that fluctuates over time. That's I own these businesses and I really believe in their upside. 
anyway, thanks for watching, guys. If you want to uh, check me out more, uh, my again, my site is Sharp Investing. Thanks so much for watching. I will see you next month with a new contrarian pick.